How are we doing, folks? My guest today is going to be Rob Kober. Rob is one of the greatest coaches of all time in freestyle mobile skiing. He's been in the sport as a coach for over 30 years. And along that time, he has coached Olympic gold medalists, world champions, World Cup overall champions, national champions, and everything in between. And in 2018, it culminated in the Canadian National Coaching Association, giving Rob the honor of the Jack Donahue Coach of the Year Award. In this episode, we go through and touch on some of Rob's coaching philosophies, some of the highlights of his career, some of the downsides, and, and some of the things he might do just slightly differently. Uh, we also touch on, obviously, those successes and, and habits and, and things that really kept him at his best and, and kept his team constantly improving. Also, In the Arena is donating $250 on Rob's behalf to the Terry Fox Foundation, which uh, goes towards cancer research. You can find out more about Terry Fox and the Terry Fox Foundation at terryfox.org. I hope you folks enjoy this episode, and please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks. Boarding. There it is. <laughs> oh. Mr. Right. Kober, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time as we touched on beforehand, you know, we tried to, tried to make this happen uh, a little bit earlier in the fall, but, uh, ski season happens and coaching happens and, uh, long days. And it makes it a little bit difficult when you're on different time zones in Sweden oh, and kind of all over <laughs> COVID and yeah, of course. Yeah. No, <laughs> all, all kinds of restraints here, mm -hmm. but, uh, really, really excited to have you on. I mean, uh, definitely for me personally, like a, a serious idol and someone that I look up to uh, in, in the coaching world, because it's one of those things that I've always uh, kind of wanted to get into. And, you know, I just finished getting my degree in sports uh, or in psychology, finally, 13 years later. And now I kind of want to continue, I think, master's and then PhD in sports psych. And I've always just had a, a, a real passion for coaching. And uh, in my mind, you're, you're clearly one of the, the greatest mogul coaches of all time, without doubt. Um, you know, uh, no one has coached more Olympic gold, uh, gold medals for certain uh, in the sport than, than you. And uh, you, you have a, quite the impressive resume. Uh, so it's really, really uh, happy to have you on and taking the time. Well, thanks, Bobby. That's a pretty glowing, uh, pretty, pretty glowing intro, but uh... Yeah, I, I, I uh, definitely think you're doing a good job yourself. I didn't know that, uh, I think from listening to previous podcasts, I'd heard you make some mention of, of uh, going to school and, and education. I wasn't, uh, I didn't know necessarily that you're specializing in sports psych, though. That's definitely uh, very cool. Definitely a huge asset as a, as a coach. And yeah, I think you're doing a pretty good job yourself these days. There's definitely no shortage of... Uh, Good, good bump skiers coming out of your neck of the woods. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, well thank you uh, very much. Appreciate that. But it's one of those things kind of looking back um, for you. We have a little bit of, of connection that I didn't really realize until um, I started digging into some doing some research for this and everything. And that would be uh, Peter Judge. He's really to blame for me getting into this sport and everything else. Ah. Him along with my dad uh, at Freestyle International in 98 when I was like eight years old. So Peter was like my original coach way back in the day. And I know he, he, uh, he coached you, right? Uh, a little bit. A little yeah, bit. Yeah, a right. little bit. I did. I got to ski as a, as an athlete. I only ever got to ski in one world cup. Peter coached me on occasion. He was much more of a, a mentor to me as mm -hmm. a coach. Okay. And he was one of my heroes when I was, a, when I was a kid, he was one of the guys that really won me over to the sport as uh 
kind of one of my idols in the sport. I, uh, I came to freestyle late. I was more of a hockey player as a kid. My dad was a hockey player and I, you know, I grew up on the prairie in central Alberta and, you know, a few hour drive from the mountains and um, my parents weren't skiers. And uh, at one point, my grades started to suffer a little bit, I think. And uh, the going from like peewee to bantam, the schedule went from like a 35 game season to like a 55 game season. And my parents said, no, you're not, you're not going to play hockey anymore. And I had some good buddies in the, in the freestyle club. We had a pretty strong local, local club back in those days, and they kind of got me into it. And uh, I did it for fun for a couple of years. And then uh, in 1985, uh, Canadian Nationals were at Sunshine Village. Okay. Banff there. And mm -hmm. it was Peter Judge's last year competing. I think he was kind of already the coach. He was kind of like a, a player coach on the mm -hmm. Canadian team. Yeah. And he won the mogul event at Canadian Canadian Nationals on this, you know, really steep, gnarly, old school mogul course. 1985 is like mm -hmm. big angel at sunshine, super steep, you know, no prepared jumps, no chop landings, of course, in those days. And and he killed it. And that was, uh, you know, that was one of the events where, you know, like before that, I was just skiing with my buddies. And that was the first time I really ever saw freestyle skiing live at a high, high, high level. Mm -hmm. And then Sunday, of course, was aerials. And that's the first time I ever saw triples done on snow. And I was, as a kid, I was blown away. And that that kind of really hooked me. So Peter was one of my kind of idols uh, as an athlete. And then, of course, when I got into coaching, he really, uh, when I first, uh, when I coached the BC team and first moved down to uh, the Whistler area, mm -hmm. had a, uh, Josh was born, my oldest son. He was like one year old or one and a half. And Peter was living in Whistler at the time. And he really uh he really kind of took me under his wing and kind of gave me some good advice and coaching and life in general and then uh of course you know just was a constant presence in freestyle and uh ceo for most of my years coaching the canadian team and just uh you know fantastic leader in our sport so very lucky to have had him uh, as a mentor mm -hmm. and he was a good yeah i mean it seems like a uh, obviously a great great guy that allows you um to, to just do your job and, and get the results. Uh, so for uh, one of the things, looking at uh, just your resume and going through, I mean, it seemed like you had a good amount of schooling and you went National uh, Coaching Institute in, in Victoria. And did you kind of know that that's the, the area you kind of wanted to pursue after maybe your athletic career was over? You know, you got the one World Cup in and you're like trying to figure out how, how did you kind of come to that decision that, that, that this was the avenue you kind of wanted to go down? I, it, it really became clear to me when I when I blew my knee and uh, I was still trying to, you know, probably semi-delusional, the classic kind of teenage mogul skier kind of, uh, I guess if I was really honest with myself at that time, I, I knew I probably wasn't good enough to ever be a great World Cup skier, but you kind of, you know, you hang on to the dream, you know, you kind of cling to it for, for a few years and, uh, and then I, 1990, I tore my ACL and uh, it was kind of a, it was a complicated one. It was a 70% tear, but uh, lots of cartilage damage and not sure if they should do surgery because it wasn't a complete tear and just kind of dragged on for months. And okay. I'm just kind of going through that ordeal. It kind of became clear to me that uh, this uh, athletic side wasn't maybe going to work out the way I had hoped. And mm -hmm. I had done a little bit of coaching already, like kind of on the side and knew that I liked it. And uh, I switched. I was going to the University of Calgary at that time, mostly in business courses. And I switched everything to uh, 
the faculty of physical education and just totally changed my outlook and my grades immediately went up actually and uh, <laughs> my motivation for school once I kind of had a direction for it was way way higher and so I, I finished off a, a degree in in phys ed at that time I think I, I was the last year at the University of Calgary where they still called it a phys ed degree the graduating class the next year was a kinesiology degree uh, so okay <laughs> it was uh but it was a good decision and uh I had uh you know, my dad was a farmer, so I did a lot of work on the farm mm -hmm. growing up. And then I had, uh, my mom was a uh, director of nursing at the hospital in Red Deer where I grew up. And she hooked me up with a job in the finance department at this hospital okay. uh, when I thought I wanted to get a, a, a business degree. So I did four summers of that. And between, you know, those two things that really helped me uh, make it clear what I didn't want to do with the rest of my life and <laughs> solidified for me the coaching path and you know, I, I just, I really, uh, you know, I had a lot of good friends, kind of the typical freestyle experience, I think, you know, I made a lot of great friends as a kid um, and had a lot of fun doing the sport, just fell in love with the sports. And I like the, like the, the actual teaching part of coaching. And I, I love the competition. I love to compete. And uh, it was kind of a no brainer. I think uh, I was really lucky that I I feel like I really found my calling and uh, mm -hmm. I have no regrets at this point. I've been doing it for probably 30 years now and still love it. Pretty burned out. I have to admit <laughs> pretty burned out, but, uh, but I still love it. Still motivated to coach and still mm -hmm. enjoy working with kids. So, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it definitely, especially in, in our sport, the, the travel, I think, I think there's certain aspects when you're younger, the, the travel is still fun and you still enjoy those aspects and then as life kind of changes and you have Josh and Jordan and as they're growing up you're starting to you'll be on the road traveling and things of that nature so it does does kind of have that uh give and take to it uh, and being on the road uh qu quite a bit uh, that's for sure I'm not sure like on the one hand I have no regrets but uh mm -hmm. you know I am a family man mm -hmm. I'm not really a party guy and uh I I missed a lot for sure. I missed a lot of my kids growing up and, and, uh, I, I love coaching. I love the guys I coached, you know, we, we had a lot of fun and we accomplished a lot, but at the same time, I, I'm not sure I would do it exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Um, boy, there's, there's some tough times, uh, with the kids. There's one time I, uh, was talking to my daughter from, uh, from Zermatt and I, she asked, you know, daddy, where are you at? And I said, Oh, I'm, I'm at the ski hill. I'm at the ski hill, sweetheart. And she thought I was up at apex when I said the ski hill. So she's mommy, mommy, daddy's at the ski hill. Daddy's at the ski hill. She thought it was like a half hour drive up the road at the ski hill. And then it's no, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm in Switzerland. I'm on the other side of the world. And then the tears are flowing and you're talking to this little girl on the phone, you know, your heart is breaking. And oh. there's just too many, like, there's too many of those kind of circumstances when your kids are young. It, it was really, it was really tough, but uh, mm -hmm. I do. I still love the job and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a tough one, but, uh, it is what it is at this point. But, but at the, I mean, at the same time, you, oh, I mean, almost because, you know, the connection with a lot of those athletes and stuff like that, that, that you build is, is similar to almost having, uh, you know, it's like an extended family, you know, because you spend so much time on the road with them teaching and, and trying to guide and, and, and be a good role model, or just try to get them to stand up in a damn transition, uh, you know, multiple different, uh, things that, that kind of, I feel like, uh, builds the bond with, with the athletes for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Those guys, 
you know, those, those guys are, uh, I was very lucky to coach the, the guys that I, I've been able to work with over the years. They're some fantastically talented skiers, you know, the guys, uh, you know, Mick, obviously the very top of the sport and, you know, guys like Vincent Marquis and, uh, PA Rousseau and great, great skiers, but, you know, and, and it's super cliche to say, I know, but it, they really are great guys and, and that's more important. And we just had so much fun, you know, like so many years yet, like you say, all that travel for you know, 16 years, I spent more time, uh, more time with the team than I did with my family. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, you work hard, you work hard together, you have a lot of fun together and, uh, it, it really does feel like family. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of love on those teams and those guys, you know, were, were pretty tight. Um, you know, everybody wasn't always best friends with everybody, that's for sure. But there's some pretty close uh, relationships, pretty close friendships. And, uh, it really did feel like a, like a big family. And, uh, even though we are an individual sport, I think that was a huge part of our success on the Canadian team. Like just everyone was so well supported and, um, you know, you just, you feel like you're in that big family and everyone's kind of got the same dream, the same mission and pushing each other every day, like good, healthy training, good, healthy mm -hmm. competition day in, day out. And you can't help, but, but get better. Mm -hmm. Now for you kind of, as you start to get in and, and what was it like creating that culture? Cause I feel like, you know, as you're kind of touching on that, like, you know, the, the, everybody, not always friends, but I mean, they did have that good camaraderie and everything else like that. And, and I feel like that's, that doesn't just happen. That takes time to kind of create and, and build the, the winning culture. And then once it goes, it kind of has a life of its own and the momentum that you have can, can be unstoppable. But I mean, how, how difficult was that to kind of build uh, uh, the culture there? You know, it, that's, that's pretty interesting. Like two of, uh, two of your favorite uh, two of your podcasts that are my favorites so were uh, the Peter, the one you did with Peter, and uh, the one you did with Bobby, Bobby mm -hmm. Aldegary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to Bobby. He he brought me in as his assistant coach in, in 2002. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of talent on the Canadian team, but, you know, it there's always a little bit of that inferiority complex in, in mobile skiing in Canada uh, at that time. And I think, you know, Bobby came in and he's just got such a, you know, such a, a passion for the sport and, and such a zest for life, you know, like just so <laughs> high energy. And, uh, for me personally, and I think for the team, like just, you know, Bobby really showed us that it was possible and he really believed in, in the potential of the Canadian team. And, uh, he really helped me personally believe in my ability to coach at a world cup level. And, uh, you know, he kind of set that standard and there was a lot of resistance in his you know the last four years there between 2002 2006 there's a, a rocky road freestyle canada ran into some problems and peter judge kind of had to come in and clean up that mess and uh that things were pretty disjointed there for a few years and and mm -hmm. really bobby had his hands full with the team and there were all kinds of barriers to 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 our success but uh you know bobby is uh a super, super persistent, disciplined, hardworking man. And, mm -hmm. uh, 
he was a great role model for me in that regard. And I think that just kind of, it took some, it took some time. And unfortunately for Bobby, it didn't really come fully into fruition. Um, in 2006, Jen, Jen won, but Jen, sure. you know, kind of trained privately and mm-hmm. um, we had some pretty solid results, but uh, you know, Bobby wanted that medal so bad for the team and uh, we were close, you know, we we're, we we're just off. I went to four, four Olympic games and I had uh, fourth place in men's moguls every single time. <laughs> so that's, that's a kind of one claim to fame. I don't know if I, I like it or not, but, uh, but yeah, Bobby really deserves a lot of credit, you know, for, for kind of starting, for laying the groundwork to having that, uh, having that culture. And after, you know, he, he, he left and after the games in 2006, and we just had a, a good core of talented guys and uh, guys that, you know, kind of shared that same passion for the sport and were willing to put in the work. And mm-hmm. well, 2007 was kind of a bit of a transition year, but uh, in the two, 2008 season, we, those guys kind of started to rise to the top and Canada won. We led, I have to uh, apologize a little bit to all the, the you know, the, the female mogul skiers, I, I'm much more up on my stats on the men's side because, you know, we kind of did, we were the one country that's kind of split the programs kind of together, right. but separate. Yeah. So I kind of mm-hmm. tracked the men, but from 2008 on, we won, we led the, the nation's cup points in men's moguls for every year until up until maybe up until now, I didn't keep it as close a track uh, the mm-hmm. last couple of years, but, uh, but yeah, that's uh, I think, you know, Bobby laid that groundwork and we had the, you know, I was lucky when he, he left, I had a bunch of committed, talented, talented kids. And it's like another kind of sport cliche, but when you're, when your best skiers are also your hardest working skiers, it just sets that, that, uh, the, that good example, it sets the, the bar high. And as new kids come onto the team, they just kind of, they roll right into that. And, and luckily most of the guys, you know, they're hard workers, but they had fun with it. And so it was never, you know, for most of them, it was never, you know, tedious or, or boring. Uh, mm-hmm. They, you know, they, they had fun with the sport and we were able to get a lot done. Yeah, absolutely. Now, okay, so the, what was kind of, would you say your coaching philosophy? I mean, are you more analytically, uh, I know Bobby definitely likes to be by the numbers and some of those things. And I'm just kind of curious for you throughout the years. I mean, how much do you kind of listen in and, and, take from potentially other coaches or um, different things like that, that really kind of helped. Cause I feel like it's always, it's not just one main thing. You're always kind of peppering things in that like, Ooh, I kind of, kind of like that there. Or maybe it's something you read in a book or, but what are kind of some of those main, main pillars that, that you really um, cemented, I guess, throughout your, your years of coaching that, that you think really led to a successful program as well? Yeah, I, that's a, that's a tough one. I think there's probably a number of, a number of small things, but I think, uh, one thing, um, one thing that I think, uh, you know, I got it. There's a, a clip from, uh, I, that I think I probably got from Bobby actually, but back like, I don't know, 20 years ago, ESPN, they had the sports century series mm-hmm. and there was one episode on coaching and great coaches. And, uh, it was John Madden at the end said, you know, great coaches know what the end looks like. Mm-hmm. And I don't know for sure, hundred percent what he meant by that. But the way I took that is, you know, you know, you know, the end game, you know, what it is that you're trying to do. 
Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of kind of distractions in our sport that, uh, that we're all guilty of. I, I know I'm still, uh, as much as I think that's one of my strengths, I, I'm still guilty of it too. Like we can get, go too far down the road of just pure technique, whether it's the skiing or the jumping mm-hmm. or, you know, there's all kinds of little rabbit holes that, uh, we can go down trying to, trying to improve ourselves, but that may or may not have any real benefit to, to our success. So I kind of really took that, that quote to heart. And I think one of my strengths has been really trying to nail down exactly what it is we need to do to be successful. Mm-hmm. And those, uh, those things, it's, you know, on the surface, a lot of the time it's, it's kind of common sense or it may seem obvious, but like I say, it's, it's easy to get distracted and kind of get off on a tangent and end up spending hours and hours working really hard at something that's not necessarily going to pay off. And mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that I've done a good job, uh, done a good job at, uh, I'm a stats guy. I like the stats. I've, that's one rabbit hole that I've gone down. Uh, it's, I think it's been a benefit too, but I've wasted a lot of time tracking <laughs> stuff, but, but you know, you never know until you try either. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sometimes you, you get an idea and you think this could really be helpful and it takes a lot of work. If you really want to do something right, it takes, you know, can take a lot of work. And, uh, I think it's worth it to kind of go through that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, even if it doesn't end up paying off, at least then, you know, and you usually are going to learn something, um, okay. from that, as long as you're smart enough to know when to pull the plug and kind of cut <laughs> your losses and, yeah get back to the stuff that is that is going to work but uh i've done a lot of stuff like uh like just trying to uh figure out exactly what it is that the judges are are looking for both you know as far as what i think they're supposed to be looking for and Mm -hmm. anticipating what uh you know may pay on any given course how kids can maybe you know optimize their performances what things they, they can really try to focus on and take a lot of time to watch the video and uh to actually practice scoring the runs mm-hmm. and tracking progress by, you know, kind of charting my own average scores from training days and really keeping track of times. And uh, I tried to, one of the basic ones that I think has really paid off is just keeping a top to bottom percentage on the right. kids, mm-hmm. kind of like a batting average. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you have a decent skier and if they're skiing, if you combine uh, a top to bottom percentage with what an average average velocity is mm-hmm. if, you know you got a guy that can ski you know on average he can ski close to 10 meters per second on most courses mm-hmm. and he's finishing nine out of ten top runs that are supposed to be top to bottoms he's finishing them as top to bottoms then without big mistakes you know you know some days you might be 20th some days you might be fifth but you're gonna be you know mm-hmm. you're gonna be reliably in a certain range mm-hmm. so like kind of figuring out little ways to monitor performance like that and to try to quantify it instead of always just being subjective. I think that's been, that's been a strength. And Mm -hmm. the other side benefit of that kind of thing, you can create that internal competition within the team. And you kind of, I would post those numbers every day, like kind of put them in a Facebook group so the guys could see it. And that, that created a lot of good internal competition within the team. And you know, Mark Antoine Gagnon, he would look at his score and he'd be like, two fourths, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two fourths. Two there, of those yeah. fourths, yeah. <laughs> he'd be looking at those scores, kind of going, you know, like, 
My, I, Rob only gave me 78 points. He gave Mick 83 points in training today. I'm going to kick his ass tomorrow kind of thing. And like, it really kind of generated that uh, for some of the guys, you know, for not, not everyone, for sure. Not mm -hmm. everyone liked looking at the numbers, but a lot of the guys did. A lot of the guys found it motivational and kind of created that good, uh, good internal competition. In addition to being, you know, just a good tool for, for the coaching staff to, to really try to be honest with ourselves about where we're at, you know, mm -hmm. like I think we see that a lot in our sport where kids can fool themselves, you know, they can have that one great run, you know, like they can do a good back full, a good cork seven with a decent time, no mistakes, but they can do it only one time out of every five runs. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's classic in mogul skiing. We see that all the time and right. so just training that consistency and being able to quantify it, being able to, you know, not just say, well, I think I'm doing a good job, but being able to say, well, actually, you know, your top to bottom percentage is only 50%. So, you know, you can flip a coin on your next run to see sure. how we're going to do it. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, one of those things that I'm just kind of curious about, uh, it's been one we've actually uh, touched on a few times, but when, as, as you're a higher level athlete and, and say you've gone through, you've gotten some serious results and everything else, uh, just in your opinion, is it time to say you have a, a smoke and run and you can be at, at the highest level uh, doing a 360 to a backflip, but then as you need to make progression and as you need to, uh, you know, up that DD and everything else, get into the back poles and cork sevens and everything else, how difficult is it to be able to, to pull that plug? And because you're going to take the lumps, you're not going to be you know, whether you were 90% with that great run and you know you can get the result with that lower uh, uh, run, you know, most of the time, but then you, you start to fall behind in the long term of, okay, where do you kind of really want to go? Do you do, what, what is the end game there? Because that's one thing, you know, I've really tried to at least chat with the athletes about. It's like, okay, do you want the result today? And you're doing that same run that you've done for maybe the last two or three years, or is it time to rip the bandaid off, make the progression and, and take your lumps now for the progression that will come in, in two or three years? Yeah, that is, that is the question. <laughs> that is the question. And for sure, that's, uh, yeah, so much, so much lies in the answer to that question. <laughs> it's, uh, it can, it can definitely be a tough one. And mm -hmm. I think it's, um, it's a lot easier question to answer if you have the luxury to have good, safe training venues on a regular basis to train the acrobatic side of the sport. I think, mm -hmm. you know, we, I know I can remember, I can't remember which podcast, but maybe in a couple different ones, talking to uh, some of your other guests about, about that. And I know, you know, for yourself, I believe you were, you know, fantastic skier, but when the sport started to go down that acrobatic road and, it became required if you wanted to move up, at least, especially at the, on the men's side, you had to start to learn these more acrobatic mm -hmm. skills. And it, it definitely requires a little bit more of a commitment to investment of time and energy. And uh, you need to have access to safe venues to, to train that. So if you, you know, if you live super far from a water ramp or a trampoline, you know, it's going to be a lot tougher. And some kids, you know, there are, the acrobatically gifted kids you you know you find that kid that has a little bit of that acrobatic gift and they lack fear mm -hmm. that is that's huge like that's one of the biggest assets you could have in our sport and those are pretty pretty 
few and far between, unfortunately. So for most of us, we need uh, we need to try to create a safe way. It doesn't necessarily have to be a water ramp. I'm more familiar with water ramps and sure. airbags, yeah. but uh, there's good, there's you know safe modalities to learn and train. And um, once you're on snow too, you know just being being able to have like up at apex quite often early season, we could create a really good safe venue to to transition from water ramp to snow, but out of the moguls. And that's mm -hmm. a I in my opinion, that's a really critical step. I see a lot of, a lot of kids, a lot of programs skip, like it's pretty dicey trying to go straight from the water ramp to the top air in Zermatt <laughs> to do your first back poles on snow. And so many kids we see do it that way. And, and some of them get away with it. A lot of them kind of, kind of get away with it, but like you say, you're going to take your lumps, boy, you're going to mm -hmm. take your lumps doing it that way. So if you can have you know, with the Canadian team, we'd always have in the summer on Blackcomb uh, an air site with no moguls on the landing. So we have a big block of training, jumping on snow, transition from water ramp to snow um, without having to worry about these walls of death after the landing. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that's huge. And then you can kind of know that uh, once you go to snow, once you go to a mogul course, you're still going to take your lumps um mm -hmm. especially learning the, the the big dd like when you go to back full and especially double full and cork 10 mm -hmm. uh never mind cork 14 like you most of us are gonna take some lumps and and some kids are naturally tough they can take those shots mm -hmm. uh guys like you know on, i had Bilodeau was incredibly tough taking mm -hmm. those shots a kid would he could take a hard crash and get up and dust himself off and drop a few f-bombs and then be right back <laughs> he'll be right back in there doing it again and the kazakhstan team like those guys were so tough i'm learn i i'm pretty sure they learned their cork sevens on snow i remember watching <laughs> those guys back maybe it's probably like 15 years ago now and they look like first timers They're hiking the bottom air in Zermatt and just eating it jump after jump after jump and they get up and hike back up and do it and do it again. And, you know, most kids that most kids that I have had experience coaching more at a club level, you know, like no way they do that once or twice and it'd be, you know, the cry, mm -hmm. cry baby hot chocolate down in the lodge. <laughs> and, but these guys like just incredibly, incredibly tough, but you know, most of us aren't going to be like that. That's not, that's not going to be the way to to get there for most of our kids. So if you can have access to the safe venues and if you can you have a situation where you can have uh, enough time to be consistent, then when you when you are ready to put it in a top to bottom, you're just going to have a much higher percentage chance of being successful. Mm -hmm. No, uh, uh, definitely. It's uh, it's it's one of those things that. Um... It is the conundrum of a lot of freestyle coaches. When is going to be the the time to to make that jump? And I think the hardest part, especially uh, for the athletes, and it can be difficult as a coach as well, is when you know an athlete uh, could probably win an event or go do better. You know, doing the lower D, backing down, doing their old run rather than you know pushing the envelope and everything else to try to attain attain some of those long term goals and, and things like that. So it can be a can be a tricky uh, situation to kind of navigate through there. <laughs> it definitely can. I can tell you one, like to use, to use Mick as an example, again, like his first full year on the, on the world cup tour, that 2010, 2010, 11 season, 
one of the kind of side goals we had for him was he he could do the double full and he could do the court 10 and probably did, you know, a thousand of each of those uh, before he ever made the Canadian teams. So we didn't really have to teach him very much on the acrobatic side. Um, but he, he backed down a lot too. Like we kind of made it a goal to do double full and court 10 in training on every course we saw that year. And I can't remember hundred percent. He'd be able to tell you like that, but I can't remember hundred percent if he did it on every course, like both double full and court 10, but he did there. There's not more than one or two exceptions to that. Mm -hmm. So he was able to stick to that in training, but we kind of always came back to, um, up the principle of just, you know, ski the run, you know, you can ski and just do what you need to do to, to try to win. Mm -hmm. And, you know, don't try to do too much more than that. And, uh, I think that's part of why, you know, being true to those principles is part of why he's had such an incredibly consistent career. I think there's many reasons, but I think that's one of them. So, the kids that kind of, if you get to a level and you can do back full and cork seven, but you know, you can win with whatever a back cross and a backflip mute grab now, then maybe that's okay. Because I think it's important to learn how to win too. That's a, that is a sort of sub skill unto itself. Sure. Mm -hmm. But if, if you say, okay, I don't need the back full and cork seven, I'll just stick with this. And you don't train it at all. You you lose a whole season. And, you know, one of the reasons Mick, again, to use him as an example is so successful is because he had, he had done like probably literally a thousand of each of those before he even made the Canadian team. So, you know, even when you're a good skier and you have that solid cork 10, if you've only done a handful in competition before, every time you're skiing that middle section, you're going to be crapping your drawers Mm -hmm. coming into the bottom air going, I hope it's going to work this time. <laughs> yeah. But if you've done a hundred of them and you've skied away from, you know, 95 of them, then you're, you can ski that middle section. You're going to be much more able to show your best stuff and not be stressed, you know, skiing with that extra nervous tension of going, Oh boy, I'm going to have to do court 10 here in about five more seconds. So. <laughs> no, it's definitely uh, that, that, that makes uh, a lot of sense for sure. Now, one of those things are just kind of curious for you, how were you able to kind of, what were some of those habits or how were you able to kind of keep track of all those different athletes, you know, throughout your entire career? And, and what were some of those kind of things you would do daily that, that you think um, helped you guys uh, succeed uh, as an organization? And, you know, it doesn't have to be every day as, as the athletes would, but I mean, you for, for yourself, what were kind of some of those habits that, that you uh, really think helped? Uh, I think just ha having a good plan, you know, having a good plan and being, being able to be flexible with your plan. I think, uh, you know, I, I think again, back to um, just the notion of knowing what it is that we're trying to do, just kind of being really clear on what we need to do to be successful. Um, and then having a good plan to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for any given day, any given week, any given training camp and any given season and kind of fitting that into you know, a whole quadrennial. Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy that side of coaching. I, uh, a little bit OCD with that stuff. And I like having my spreadsheets and I kind of like adding up my numbers to a fault for sure. Yeah. To a fault. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but at the same time, I think if you kind of have that roadmap and know that it's okay to, uh, to stray from it, you know, I think that's another super important thing in our sport. Like it's one thing to have a certain plan for, 
you know, like for instance, this course up at Apex here, the way it was a couple of days ago, you, you know, with a couple inches of fresh snow and then, you know, that temperature goes up to, you know, 10 degrees Celsius and everything's mm -hmm. melting. And then that, you know, goes back down to minus 20 overnight. And the plan you had for that day might not be appropriate anymore. <laughs> right. so just kind of knowing when not to force things and how to adjust and kind of with kind of your bigger goals in mind, but how to tweak things and just trying to be one step ahead and then anticipate. And I think as coaches, it's pretty interesting. I think, you know, probably with the number of number of years of experience you've got in the sport now, you've probably seen this too, but you kind of know as a coach, you can step back from the sport and you can kind of see what's happening. And uh, a lot of the stuff is common sense, but the kids, you know, like the kids are really hardwired, you know, and mm -hmm. stuff that's common sense for us is just, you know, not necessarily maybe at an intellectual level, they're hearing you and they understand but in the moment, especially if a competition is coming up, you know, they're still going to maybe try too hard and not adjust the plan, not be able to adapt mm -hmm. quickly enough to changing conditions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we just, I'm sure, you know, we see that all the time where a kid is just killing it on one day and then the snow's a little bit different the next day and they can't adjust in time. And if it's competition cycle, I mean, it's, You've got only whatever, if there's only a 90 minute training block and it's a 20 minute turnaround time, you're only going to get whatever, six or seven runs sure. and every run counts. And if you're wasting all this time trying to figure it out by trial and error, it's all of a sudden the day's going to be over and you haven't done Jack. <laughs> and that's where he's like, a guy like PA was just a master at that. Like that guy, he had skied long enough and, you know, by the last few years of his, his career, he was pretty, you know, he was not as uh, fit and, you know, had had his bumps and bruises and mm -hmm. uh, he really, I think he, he had a good understanding. He was still probably a little delusional, <laughs> but he had a, <laughs> some understanding of where he was at physically and what he was going to be able to do. And he, he was, he got very, very good at assessing things and just taking things really slow and anticipating the adjustments he would have to make day to day and run to run and, being able to execute that without kind of wasting those things, like those runs, just figuring things out by trial and error. And I think mm -hmm. that's a, a skill you definitely see. Like I definitely saw the last few years I, I coached Mick and, and Phil Marquis, like those guys would definitely get smarter at that and not, you know, not continue to abuse themselves and mm -hmm. uh, have better anticipation of the little things uh, they would need to adjust, but you know, a classic story, a really funny story. I mm -hmm. think it's funny anyways. They, they might not, but uh, <laughs> those guys, I remember being uh, the first time they tried to do that duels thing uh, with just a big air, more of a big air type right. yeah. bottom air yep. dual moguls. And it was in uh, Mijev, Fr I France, think. right? Yeah. In France. Mm -hmm. And the guys, like the girls couldn't even make the landing. And like, these are the best girls in the world, you know, then mm -hmm. you had to go so fast into the bottom air to, to just to make the landing. It was, you know, if you got off the jump, you're going to be okay. But if anyone was going to get hurt, it was because you're going like 15 meters per second coming, coming into that bottom air table. You catch a little edge and go down, going that fast. You're, you're going to be hurt. Yeah. And uh, these guys were just, hauling ass like to, <laughs> to do their their tricks off the bottom air and uh 
it, it kind of became fun and it was, you know, whatever, it was a fun event. And I was kind of like on reflecting back on that day, you never feel good about that stuff. But in the moment it was fun. The guys were having fun, whatever. But then we go back to Val St. Com mm -hmm. for Canadian nationals. And you know what that bottom air is like. Oh yeah. Like, hey guys, <laughs> guys, <laughs> you got to slow down. We are not in France anymore. You got to slow down. Like, you know, you're going to feel so slow going off this bottom air and you're still going to be too big. It's going to be so easy to out jump this landing, be safe, but it's nationals and they're tired. And every single one of the Mick included Phil Marquis and Mark Antoine, all these guys. And for Mark, it's his home hill. It's his home. Right. Course. And still, <laughs> these guys come in and they think they're under control and they hit that bottom air and they land like first run, they land like five bumps into that landing like halfway to the finish line i'm like freaking out for sure somebody's gonna die here today and it's one of the few times i think i ever i don't know if i showed anger i hope i didn't but it's one of the few times i ever felt mad at those guys because we said it's like guys you gotta be smart here it's nationals everyone's tired we're already going to be more prone to injury like be smart this bottom air it's all drop time this is we are not in france anymore and every single guy every single guy like landing on their tails i don't think anyone actually backslapped but like doing the wheelie like all the way. landing way 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 too far and just i was sure i was gonna get fired that day <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. Sometimes, well, it's it's interesting to be able to see it. I feel like from that like thirty thousand foot view, but then also being the former athlete and everything else, you also kind of see into there. We're like, oh man, that top pair exits like crazy. You know, I'm not gonna be able to get out of this top or what? You know, on whatever course where there's that tricky situation, it's like if you just stand up and just look at from the thirty. It's we're just skiing bumps here. We're not carrying cancer. Like we're not. Yeah. You know, it's it, it, you you know, keep it, keep it simple. We can keep it simple here and, and not overthink this thing. And it's, it's interesting how, how some athletes are definitely better at being able to do that. I'm like, Oh yeah, you're right. I just need to relax here and everything's going to be fine. And then on the other end, you're wrong. And I, I need to throw my feet and ride it out and freak out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's always, that's always fun. It's always funny yeah no i mean it's definitely uh it, it's, it's one of those things it's an interesting it's an interesting mind game to to play it and, and try to figure out and uh it's it certainly has its good days and, and its bad days but uh, you know one of those things that i wanted to touch on was just you know how much perseverance kind of uh plays into to your career and just because there are those days where you know maybe earlier on you're not getting results and you're putting in all the work or you decide to go down this rabbit hole and invest all this time and everything and it, and it doesn't work out. Um, and, and just some of those lows and, and, you know, one thing you kind of touched on about not showing the emotion that you're angry there, uh, you know, or, or at least, you know, like upset or, or pissed, you know, that they might not be doing, you know, what, what you had wanted them to. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious, uh, how, how important you think that is as, as a coach and how much did it help for you? Oh, well, I think, you know, I think of, uh, as an athlete, I always liked uh, I, the last the last coach I had was a fellow by the name of Gord Campbell, who was uh, 
always a very, very composed guy. And that just always gave you confidence as an athlete. Like he never got too bent out of shape. He, he, I only ever remember him being mad at me one time and I deserved it, <laughs> but he was just very, very steady, very, very fun coach, competitive guy, but very, you know, he was a very fun coach. Uh, he made it fun for us. And, uh, I just, I remember how, uh, you know, how that instilled confidence, like this guy's got your back. He's not getting bent out of shape, every little thing that goes wrong. And for sure, I, there are lots of times where, uh, you know, I lost my temper. I, for sure, I'm guilty of not being the best of sports, yelling at the judges from time to time, those kind of situations that I'm not super proud of. But, uh, you know, the major majority of time, I think I, I tried to, you know, compose myself, uh, stay calm in those kind of situations. And, whether it's pressure, whether it's, you know, like uh, injuries, or I think that just, that goes a long ways, both uh, for you to be able to continue to do your job effectively and instilling that confidence in the athletes. Um, so I, I yeah, I, I think that's super important that I always, uh, the times in my career where I, where I, didn't control my emotions adequately. I definitely are the, are the, the regrets I have in my mm -hmm. careers. Okay. That's good. That's good. Because I can definitely, especially around competition, I, I definitely have a competitive, so it's good, good, good learning for me to try to, I usually feel like I stay pretty, pretty composed, but you never know who's watching at certain periods of time when you, uh, so that's, that's good. Good. I appreciate the advice on that because I can definitely, uh, work on that. I feel like sometimes. So, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Hey, it's uh, working with kids is what uh, I have the most respect in the world for uh, kindergarten teachers, like grade one teachers working with kids. It's a little bit easier for us, you know, working with athletes and working with older, you know, older athletes. I enjoy coaching kids a lot too, though. I, you know, I, I enjoy working with, with younger kids. I wouldn't want to do it full time, but uh, I really enjoy that part of coaching as well. But but it is a challenge and they will, you know, they will challenge us. They will uh, frustrate us. Mm -hmm. And it is easy to, to start to lose patience, <laughs> to start to lose patience. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely a, a skill un, unto itself too. And uh, it's a lot easier coaching the best athletes in the world. I think uh, in that regard than, than coaching at a club level, like the, the younger you get and the lower the skill level, the more, I think on average, your, your patience is going to be tested. And, uh, but it is an important skill and it will, it does pay all the way to, to the top of the top of the pyramid in sports. So mm -hmm. now, uh, uh, what would be like a few other, I would say, uh, pieces of advice for, you know, if people, uh, whether they're in the ski sports world or they're just in want to get into coaching in general, I mean, what, what kind of, other words of wisdom would you uh, would you kind of have for them to to help guide them through when they're trying to trying to figure things out? <laughs> well, I know it's an, it's another it's it's super cliche as well, but it, it really is about the process. And uh, I think you know I've been so lucky to have had the the talent that I've had to work with, and uh, and even doubly lucky that most of you know if not all of those athletes are are really good human beings as well as being great skiers. But, uh, you know, only one guy can be the winner at the end of the day. And if you're doing it only for results, then you're setting yourself up for, uh, 
for a lot of bad days. I was, mm-hmm. you know, talking to Josh about that, you know, while he was down there, down your way at the, <laughs> at the Noram and Deer Valley. And mm-hmm. he, his team really kicked butt at the uh, event we had here in December before uh, at Apex. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I think he, he was on cloud nine there for the last couple of weeks and really proud and rightfully so of his team. I think, you know, he's really loving his life right now. He, he really loves coaching and that's been neat for me to be able to, uh, to have him come and ask for advice and have those kind of conversations. That's been quite fun for me, but, uh, it's definitely, you know, a little bit, uh, knocked back down to earth here at that, uh, Deer Valley Noram. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you definitely got to enjoy the process and, and it really is, it's about trying, you know, it's about putting yourself out there and, uh, you know, doing, doing your best, uh, kind of leaving, leaving everything on the table when you're, when you're done your career, you know, you want to be able to look back and, and just know that you gave it your best shot and you didn't, you didn't hold anything back. I think that's true as an athlete. It's true as an, as a coach. And uh, if you do your best for the kids that, you know, kind of put their faith in you and you can look back in five years or 10 years and go, yeah, like I didn't, uh, you know, my guy didn't win. He maybe could have won, but we did everything we could. Um, then I think you can, you can look back and feel good about that and be proud. And mm-hmm. I know like in Vancouver, uh, won and we, for sure, Alex was privately coached, but we mm-hmm. had a very good re- relationship with him, with Dom Gauthier and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with, uh, uh, between Alex and Jen Heil. Jen Heil is awesome. She is, a uh, fantastic role model for for any athlete and so uh you know we definitely saw the advantage of uh trying to support them as much as we could and try to include them uh, in a lot of our trainings and i had a very good working relationship with dom and uh we had very good collaboration which was you know to our mutual benefit um so we were psyched for psyched for alex when he won and uh but i was really confident we had a really good shot to walk away from our home games with mm-hmm. with two medals in men's moguls and uh and we were so close mm-hmm. you know and everything going in like we had such a good plan uh and those guys did such a good job and uh you know we had a amazing pre-olympic training camp and at the games in vancouver like everything we had a very good plan and everything was uh you know, executed according to that plan. And I was so confident on that day and, uh, and, it, and we were close, but it, you know, it was close, but, but no cigar. And mm-hmm. it was, I've never experienced anything like the emotion of that day. Uh, it was, uh, you know, just so like to have your heart bursting with pride in those guys like that, but at the same time, like somebody ripped your heart out. It was like just the conflicting emotions on that day. And just the crowd was amazing, you know, in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, It was uh, just an incredible night. And I've never felt anything like that night, like to to experience like that total pride and total devastation simultaneously. There's, uh, it it was, uh, you know, heartbreaking, but uh, at the Mm -hmm. same time, it was, you know, one of the best nights of my career and I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So it, it, that, that to anyone starting out, like, you know, just enjoy, enjoy the process and just do your best. And you Mm want to like anything in life. I think I know it is super cliche, but uh, sometimes life is about the cliches. (laughs) Absolutely. uh, 
that's kind of, that's, that would be my advice. Mm -hmm. Now, what would be some of those other moments, I guess, uh, for you personally of like big, big learning experiences, uh, coaching wise, either, you know, just like anticipating one thing and then completely getting something totally unexpected or, or what are just some of those things where you really, uh, learned, learned a lot from that you kind of, uh, some of those failures, I guess, or successes that you kind of just didn't, didn't see coming. Yeah, I, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, the one, you know, it's maybe a little more of a, a detailed example. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, but I guess a really basic one at one point too, but I know like, again, in Mick's first year, uh, first full year of world cup, I, uh, he, we were at the Lake Placid Noram. It was a double, like it was two single events yep. and, uh, in the first one. Mick ran, I, I want to say he ran pretty, pretty early and, uh, in qualifying, he, uh, stepped out of his binding about eight turns in mm -hmm. at the time he was only 20 points behind Gilbo. You know, he's like, I can't, he's second, maybe he was, he was second or third, but he was only 20 points out of mm -hmm. first place and, you know, did the classic kind of just tap the snow off the boots and watched him clicked in everything seemed good mm -hmm. but this was obviously you know obviously uh not a good binding release like this should not have happened mm -hmm. and uh ever since then <laughs> i was a lot more uh, diligent about uh <laughs> scraping the boot soles and making mm -hmm. sure that you know there was nothing uh no little ice chunks sticking to any contact point on those bindings for any of those guys and uh so i that's that's one kind of funny one. I can remember Conrad giving me a hard time after that one, and uh, rightfully so. But I definitely definitely took that uh, took that lesson to heart. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, Bobby. I know I remember uh, giving that some thought, but uh, yeah, that's that's one that that's one that came to mind. I, one thing that I think you know that. Uh, Another kind of, it's kind of a, a a flaw, but an asset. I think that the way I see myself, I, I always feel like, you know, we're really uh, often asked to think outside the box when we're uh, trying to find solutions to certain problems. And mm -hmm. I am not good at that. I am not good at that at all. I'm very kind of stuck in my ways. And uh one thing I, I think I am good at, which kind of ties back to one of the questions you asked earlier is I, I do listen to the other coaches and I do, I think, uh, I think I have stayed open-minded, um, mm -hmm. and always want to try to learn. I, I can't wait till someday you can maybe get uh, Steve Desovich on your, on your podcast. He's one guy. Hope like so. <laughs> I always, you know, try to stand, you know, try to stand within earshot and listening to what, how he's coaching. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just, uh, I was at, uh, an event last weekend in back in Red Deer, my hometown, we had a kind of a Canadian event there and, uh, I hadn't been home for a while, wanted to go back and visit my parents and Josh was coaching there and just kind of having a little less responsibility and hanging back and watching the different guys watch kind of listening to what they're saying to their kids and how, you know, what they're kind of demeanor is with the athletes and just mm -hmm. kind of seeing the differences and noticing different things. Like I, I enjoy that. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I hope I'm right. I hope I'm not deluding myself about that, but I feel like I'm, 
I'm good at kind of, I'm not good at necessarily coming up with new things, like new, great new innovations, but I'm good at picking up things from other people. I think I've managed to stay open enough where I might be standing behind you here at the Apex Noram and hear something uh, from you to an athlete, uh, the way you frame it, or just a different mm -hmm. way of talking about a certain aspect of technique. And I think that uh, I would be open to kind of considering that and maybe mm -hmm. bringing that into, you know, my coaching tool bag. And I think mm -hmm. that's one thing that I, I've been good at. I think that's one thing that I also learned from Bobby and, uh, you know, Bobby was just such a student of the sport and uh, just really studied all the skiers, you know, really kind of tried to become, you know, really, you know, knowledgeable about the style and the technique of, of all the different skiers and also the other coaches, you know, Bobby had, uh, we had a lot of conversations about the different guys, you know, the coaching, you know, our, the other teams on the World Cup tour and what guys were looking for, kind of what uh, just different, how much they trained and kind of mm -hmm what their training, the, the pattern was when they'd show up for official training. In those days, it seemed like there was more unofficial training on the World Cup Tour instead yeah. of just kind of two, two days and go every single event. So there's maybe a little more opportunity to observe uh, mm -hmm. some of the other teams and listen in uh, to some of that uh, some of that coaching than, than maybe there is now. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't, I know that's not maybe a super direct uh, no, I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's a great, uh, it's a great answer. It's one of those things that um, I think uh, great coaches are able to be adaptable and be able to, you know, say the exact same thing in, in multiple different ways. You know, you got to have a bunch of different arrows in your quiver and okay, maybe I mean, drive your hips down the hill, or maybe I mean, engage your hamstrings and pull your feet back trying to, whether it's trying to get the exact same thing that might click for one person one way might not click the other so it's it's definitely one of those things that that is uh interesting part about coaching and, and what's going to make the light bulb uh go off but i think being oh. able to to take those different things uh you know that's what makes a, a, a great coach for sure <laughs> you know it's really funny and, and it kind of kind of related to that that i really learned a lot from which is which is pretty funny is uh i haven't uh, and as a dad I told myself, I'm not going to coach my own kids unless they ask me to. So my, like they, you know, they kind of came up through the sport and I was gone all winter, every winter. So I really, when, when Josh and Jordy and my daughter, Chloe too, like they all kind of came up as mobile skiers. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I really did a good job, I think of sticking to that. Although when they did ask me, I jumped through that door, like with <laughs> right now, probably gave them way more than they asked for, but <laughs> But I think I was pretty good about kind of giving them their space. And but when Jordy made the Canadian team, and uh, especially the first few years he was on the team, he was really like where a lot of athletes would have the typical kind of respect of my position. And mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of guys, I I think it's really important to build that interactive relationship. Like I I want to I want to develop athletes that are going to be able to think for themselves and not be coach dependent. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's kind of one of my tenets as, as a coach. And, um, but, you know, inevitably they're going to be, they're nice, you know, they're for the sure. most part, they're nice young men. They're going to respect your, your position, your authority. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but my son, of course, I'm, I'm just dad. So, uh, it was pretty interesting. I never was challenged by 
any other athlete as much as I was by Jordan on technique. And when I try to coach him or give him points and, Mm -hmm. and he, I really learned a lot from that. He, he frustrated the hell out of me that kid. (laughs) And, uh, but I, I learned a lot. I, I definitely picked up flaws in my coaching where I was not for sure. I could have been way more clear, especially with the Francophone athletes Mm -hmm. on the team. And I know a lot of the time and, and, you know, Mick and Phil and I would joke about this all the time when they first made the team, there was like, I was just blabbing while, you know, blabbing away nonstop. And they're just kind of smiling and nodding and probably, you know, getting maybe 5% of what I was saying. And Sim, Sim Lemieux too, like Sim came with me to China and uh, as a, as a coach and, and Sim was a, uh, really promising young skier when he first came up to the Canadian team and he was just like, he was on a nice path and mm-hmm. really bad body type for mobile skiing. And eventually he tore his ACL, had a very difficult rehab and never kind of really got back. You know, he had, uh, you know, getting close to striking range of the podium, sure. had some top tens there. He's just like kind of going like this. And then uh, Ruka, like first world cup of whatever year that was. And, Ah, and then he never really kind of knee never really was the same after that. And, uh, but we, he was that kid too. He was re- very shy kid, very eager to please. You know, he did everything you asked him to super hardworking, never said a word. <laughs> sure. Like I'm talking away to this kid and you know, he's 18 year old. He just made the team and those guys, they learn English very quick and become mm-hmm. pretty, pretty proficient, very, very quick. And, but when he was first on the team, there was, he was maybe getting 10% of what I was saying and <laughs> coaching Jordan and having him, you know, he's not scared to challenge his dad at all. So like <laughs> I learned so much about some of the, the assumptions I was making that were probably really, really off base. And I think that actually did help me uh, become a better coach, a better communicator anyway. So mm-hmm. that, that's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, it's, it's really funny that you say that. I mean, one of those things, and, and I'm curious how much actually gets through. And part of the fun part is getting, you know, working and coaching your wife. So there are parts I can just see her eyes just like yeah. glaze over. And she's like, you're beating a dead horse. But for me, I would much rather like over communicate than under communicate. That's my main thing. I'd rather give you more information than you need than like at the after you're done on the comp day and you're like fuck if i had said that would what would that have done to the result like if i had if i had only mentioned that one thing at the top of the course before you went like would that have made any difference in you being able to execute like to the best of your abilities so that's it's always a you know it's a good interaction uh getting getting to work with your wife uh here and there for sure. like, and yeah. good on you for that you're a brave man <laughs> But at, but at the same time, good job. Like really, like it was great to see Avatar in finals at Trombon there. And she looked awesome. Uh, definitely, you know, uh, just clean up a few little mistakes and she can be right up there with those other girls. So good job. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's good. Good to see her kind of back uh, after her. She had her knee injury and everything else. And nice to kind of see her back, back competing. And, you know, Deer Valley was a bit of a, a bummer with us uh, coming down with the, with the COVID. Uh, we got, Got it up in Tremblant, unfortunately, but that's part of uh, part of sports. So yeah, no, it's been uh, Deer Valley was fun. You know, I don't think it was exactly the same course as the World Cup. I'm pretty sure they beat it up, and then we got the leftovers, and then it got even more beat up. It was the the Duel's Day was uh, 
certainly entertaining that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> i saw a few clips uh from singles but i haven't seen any of the i haven't seen any of the duels yet but uh I look forward to checking that out here. <laughs> there will be there will be one duel. I think it was round of eight or maybe round of sixteen. Landon Wendler on the red course against one of the uh, Canadians, I believe from Quebec. Uh, just coming in way too hot. Tries to do the uh, tries to do the layout and then not at the right moment decides to pull for double and really uh, yeah it was a scary. See, luckily he was all, you know, helped himself get into the sled and everything. I mean, he had to be sledded off, but it looked like he was full. That was, that was definitely one of those scary moments or that can happen yeah. in duels. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, definitely one of those things that happen. That's for sure. But, um, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time here. We, you know, I know we got, uh, I could, we could keep going for, for another hour at least. And I'd love, love to have you on again to continue to kind of pick your brain. Uh, so I, I would love to have you on again, but yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking wow. the time here. And uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun so far and I've got a lot of good notes here. Um, and any books at all or anything that you kind of uh, go through and, and you think kind of, would help for those coaches out there and everything else. Yeah. I'm always, I got a stack about this high that I need to get to. It's one of those things where it's like, nice. uh, yeah, I'm really, really behind in my, uh, in my reading this so far this nice. year. <laughs> well, I enjoy that. I'm really glad. Like I always kind of wait for that question on your other podcast. And I've mm -hmm. definitely added a few things to my reading list from some of, uh, from some of your other guests, but yeah, mm -hmm. I'm a reader. I got, uh, I, I, I love to read sports books. I try to alternate between, uh, something that's like a little more uh, for practical application with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with more of a, I like biographies, autobiographies, and uh, I read a lot of fiction as well. Definitely, definitely a reader, but probably, uh, you know, my favorite, my favorite sports book of all time is Playing for Keeps, okay. which is basically, uh, it's basically the, uh, the Last Dance documentary, but it was written in 1999 by David Halberstam. Okay. And David Halberstam is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, a very, very good writer, uh, more of a political journalist. He wrote some really, uh, some great books, uh, like a, a, kind of one of the seminal books on the Vietnam War, I believe is uh, the best and the brightest, I think it's called, and mm -hmm. wrote a really good book on the civil rights movement, and, uh, but kind of alternated the more serious books with a sports book. Mm -hmm. And his sports writing is fantastic I, I love his books and I think uh you know I like the more the the, the how-to books as well mm -hmm. um but I think if that's all you ever read I I think like uh a good writer like like him kind of really gets into the story of of uh you know great teams and great athletes and, and great sports stories for what you know whatever reason mm -hmm. and uh, he's written some some really good books um, playing for keeps is the basically the Michael Jordan story, and uh, it's a it's an excellent excellent read. Um, probably maybe one of your other guests has suggested it too, but one of the more recent ones I, right now I'm just finishing up the uh, Think Again by Adam Again. Grant. Okay. Uh, Adam Grant has a pretty good podcast too. Uh, it's like a TED Talks podcast. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. uh, can't remember. He's a. Uh, behavioral psychologist is quite okay. a quite a good uh, uh podcast as well um but yeah i could go on i'm sure uh 
I'm sure you, I don't want to add too much to your, to your stack, but, uh, no, no, those There's, are a good, uh, uh, yeah, a good, a good couple there yeah. for sure. Yeah. No, yeah, no, it's always, always one of those things you got to continue to to figure out and, and tinker and kind of find new ways. And it's interesting, you know, you bring up the the playing for keeps with with Michael Jordan. I mean, I feel like it is one of those things with with all great coaches. They also have great talent that that comes in and allows them. Uh, you know, it always, you know, Jordan. Would he have been the same if he didn't have Phil Knight? Would Tom Brady have been the same if he doesn't have Bill Belichick there? And there's always those interesting, uh, interesting dynamic and how coaches kind of um, can help their their athletes excel. You know, one of those things that was interesting um, from from chatting with with Mick when he came on is he really had that that analytical mind um, and you know would lay out. Uh, you know, I know he's a big film junkie and would talk about you know. He had just, he was, when, when he came on, he had just um, uh, uh, won at Tier Valley, but he was talking about missing out on, on Ruka, you know, hurting himself in Ruka and kind of coming back from that. And he was talking about Kazakhstan and, and looking at the, the years of video to see what the course was going to be like the next year. And, and part of me thinking about it, I wonder if that's just how much of that was influenced by you and your analytical statistics. All right, here's your 80%, your top to bottom ratio here. Here's the film breakdown of what Ruka's looking like and everything else. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's just coincidence that he has uh, some of that mindset. Yeah, I, I like to think that it, that it helped, but I, I do think he is naturally wired that way. I think that he, he dug that stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, so that's one thing that, that was nice that we shared. Like he was super into the, into the data and relating that to the video and his, his memory, uh, his ability to learn from that stuff is just, is just amazing. And, mm -hmm. uh, that's one, actually one other book, like it's not a super, I don't know. I didn't hear a lot of hoopla about it. Like some of the other books that are maybe marketed a little better, but one mm -hmm. of the most practical books I've read in recent years is called making it stick Okay. Uh, or make it stick. And it was written by a group of, uh, behavioral psychologists Mm -hmm. It's very science-based and when it's not, they tell you, um, but it's really, it's like how we learn. So it has uh, application for sport. There's a lot of good sports examples in there, but it's also academics and music and there's firefighter stories and military stories. And um, it's, you know, how we learn, whether it's a physical skill or more of a kind of academic skill, if it's math or if it's playing the piano, it's, just, it's a really, really good uh, practical book on how we learn and what the most effective way to study is for school. Like it'd be a great book for any student or, or any coach. And, uh, mm -hmm. one of the, one of the sections, what made me think of that is just, uh, they talk about a study or some studies where, um, they hooked up, uh, kids to, uh, fMRI and mm -hmm. measured brain activity, when a coach is talking, giving you feedback versus when they're watching video of themselves perform. And the difference in neural activation between watching video of yourself and mm -hmm. listening to a coach is a crazy, crazy difference. It's mm -hmm. like, it, like I'm, I wasn't surprised that there's a difference. I kind sure. of intuitively would have, would believe that but it was more than I ever would have thought. And so that's why I, I'm a big believer in video and using video as, as a feedback mechanism, not like for sure we do 
uh, some video review off the hill, but when you can do it in the moment, like when a kid is watching video of themselves, they're engaged, you know, they are mm -hmm. fully engaged. And you could see that with Mick like crazy. When I'm talking to these kids or maybe whatever, depending on who and what time of day, maybe 20%, maybe 60%. <laughs> but when you're watching yourself, like you are fully engaged in what's happening. So it's pretty interesting. Like, uh, I think Mick really is wired that way. And he just, I think he enjoys it and he's good at it and kind of connecting what he sees on the video with any kind of really objective numerical feedback you can, you can give him to reinforce that. And he mm. just eats that stuff up. And I, I think that's a huge, a huge asset. <laughs> good to, uh, that's definitely writing that down because usually do a lot on hill, but it's, it's interesting. I'll have to definitely check that book out and uh, see, see what I can dig into there for sure. One, one other thing I, uh, I forgot that I wanted to, to ask you um, just uh, if you could comment or just how, how rewarding it was for the Jack uh, Donahue coach of the year, you know, from the Canadian uh, coaching association, 2018. I mean, it's super huge um, honor and, and very well-deserved uh, that, that just um, had to be. Yeah. Pretty pretty unbelievable yeah thanks Bobby yeah that yeah. was that was a huge honor that was really cool that was mm -hmm. a very cool experience that that is uh uh I, yeah I that kind of left me speechless like I kind of am right now about that one <laughs> I it was it was a huge honor like you look at the list of names in uh, Canadian sport that have won that that award uh, before me and and since and that's a pretty, that's a pretty cool list to be a part of. And, uh, very, yeah, very grateful that, uh, I was nominated and they saw fit to, to, to grant me that award. And it was an incredible experience. They flew, uh, myself and my wife out to Ottawa for the, the award presentation. And it's pretty, pretty rare to have the opportunity to, you know, to be recognized in front of your peers like that. And, and Peter came, Peter was there, which was really, really, you know, that meant a lot to me. That was very special for me. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, just to kind of be able to stand up in front of your colleagues like that and accept the award and thank the people that, uh, that, uh, played a big part in, in your career and to be able to have my wife there with me as well. And, uh, you know, they put you up in a nice hotel in Ottawa and uh, we had a great weekend and I had to stress for two days, like having to make that speech it's <laughs> for sure I was like probably I was probably almost as nervous having to make that speech as I was when Mick skied his final run in Korea for the gold medal <laughs> well that was uh that was pretty intense but amazing uh, super super grateful to uh to have been nominated for that yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's uh very well uh very well deserved and um it's it's been great getting to pick your brain and uh chat your ear off a little bit here and um i, I look forward to hopefully getting to getting to do this again and get a little bit more insight and uh you know the, the freestyle world it is a small little little community um but it, it's great to be able to uh chat with some some bright minds and try to see what i can gaze into sure yeah thank you bobby I've, I've enjoyed it uh enjoyed it very much uh, from my side as well and uh yeah if you ever had room on your panel when you're doing uh, that year-end summary or your next year's year uh, uh pre pre-season 
overview, I would, if you need a, a grumpy old coach on your panel, I would, uh, I would love to join you guys for something like that. That's oh, that absolutely. Sounds, yeah. looks like a lot of fun. So. Absolutely. Definitely have you on. Well, uh, thanks a lot for taking the time. Really do appreciate it and, um, look forward to, uh, catching up for a beer hopefully next week, you know, be up in, uh, up in apex. So looking forward yeah, to seeing I look you. forward to that very much. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody for uh, listening. Appreciate it. All right. Hey everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please make sure to like share and subscribe. And if you're watching or listening on YouTube, please make sure you hit that bell button. So you get notified every time a new episode drops. Thanks.